First book of the Bible, first verse of the Bible, you've probably heard it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the book of beginnings begins. And we are spending, going to spend several weeks in this book. And we're doing it in order to answer a very important question. It's, it's the question that's the title of our series. Very short question. Who says? Who says? That is a question that comes up all the time. We deal with it all the time, whether we actually acknowledge it or think about it or not. We are. Anytime you have to make a choice that goes something like this. Is this thing, is this a good thing? Or is this a bad thing? Is this thing right or is this thing wrong? Anytime you ask that question, you're you're basically having to first answer this question. Who gets to say? Who decides? Who decides what's good, what isn't? Who gets to decide what's right and what isn't? In other words, it really comes down to who gets to, to say how I how you should live. Very important question. We deal with it all the time. But here's the thing. In order to answer that question, you really have to answer some other questions first. You have to know the answer to, for example, the question, who are you? What are you? Why are you here? What is your purpose? The only, until you know who you are, until you, you know why you're here and what your purpose is, you really can't answer a question about how you should live. So you've got to deal with those foundational questions first. And that's why we're in Genesis, because it's in Genesis that we find the Bible's answers to those questions. Who are we? Why are we here? But of course, this raises... Another question. It's all about questions this morning. And the question is, should we really be taking the answers of Genesis seriously? I mean, most people don't. Most people don't. In fact, many people would consider the very question to be ridiculous. (laughs) Take Genesis seriously? Are you kidding me? That's like asking, should we take Snow White and the Seven Dwarves seriously? I mean, no intelligent, educated person does that, right? Genesis is what people used to believe before science discovered the truth. And so what intelligent people are supposed to believe, we are told, is what's, what we could call the naturalistic, the naturalistic story of, of origins, which basically says that you and I and everything we see is the byproduct of billions of years of undirected, non-purposeful, natural processes. And see, if that's true, if that conventional view is the correct one, then you can't take Genesis seriously any more than you take any fairy tale seriously. Uh, And this is the view, this is the conventional view, this is the view you will encounter in textbooks and classrooms and magazines and museums and TV programs 
and national parks and any place you go where the discussion involves who are we and how did we get here. And so the message is loud and clear and it's everywhere. Basically, only fools take Genesis seriously. You know, that creates a serious problem if you're a believer in Jesus. Because the very same Bible that tells us about Jesus tells us about God creating us in Genesis. And it's not just in Genesis. That message is repeated all throughout the Bible. And so faced with this dilemma, many people do what they try to do, and well-meaning, they try to take that conventional, naturalistic explanation of human origins and somehow get that and blend it with Genesis to fit them together. In fact, I remember when I was a lot younger uh, pulling an old Time Life book off the shelf. It was entitled Evolution, and in the first chapter it said something like this. Quote, the first chapters of Genesis are seldom taken literally now. Rather, its sweeping prose is considered symbolic of the greatness and majesty of God. End quote. Or people will just say something like this. You know, what really matters here is the truth that God created. That's what matters. It's not about how he created. That's, that's really not the issue. So we don't, we don't need to take Genesis at face value. I completely understand that point of view. I understand where that's coming from. I just have to tell you, I'm going to go on record saying I think that's a big mistake. And I think it's a big mistake for a number of reasons. We'll talk about some of them. But I, I think it is important to take Genesis seriously, and I think it's not at all foolish in spite of what so many people say, and that's what I want to talk about today. The, tr- the truth is, and we're seeing that statistically in, in a fairly alarming way, many people who have grown up in churches just like this one, being taught, you know, hey, we believe the Bible, we take it seriously, we need to understand it, and so forth. Many people who grow up in churches like this end up walking away and rejecting the Christian message, and it's because they end up coming to, be, to believe that Genesis is not true, and this message isn't true. And if Genesis isn't true, well, then why believe the Bible? And if the Bible isn't true, why believe in Jesus? So You see, there's a lot of things at stake here. And so the question I want to just wrestle with you today is this. Why take Genesis seriously? I'm just going to give you some reasons. Okay, and you have a note sheet in your folder if you want to haul that out and take some notes. I invite you to do that. Why take Genesis seriously? I'll give you three reasons. First reason, because not taking it seriously doesn't really work. It doesn't really work. I mean, it doesn't work as someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by not taking Genesis seriously? What I mean is not accepting its straightforward account of creation at face value and instead somehow blending it with the naturalistic explanation of human origins. That actually has a number of problems if if you're a believer in Jesus 
but uh, I'm going to talk about this problem is that it doesn't really work, and it doesn't work in a couple of ways. It doesn't work logically, first of all. Logically, the two explanations of origins are mutually exclusive. The naturalistic, you have to understand this about the naturalistic explanation of, of origins. It's not simply an attempt to explain how life began. It is specifically intended to be an explanation of how life began without God. That's the intention of the story, to explain how life began without a creator. Now, one of the most common arguments people will use as a uh, evidence of God's existence is the design argument, that things like you and me and, and other people things we see, look like they were designed. And so the argument goes, designed things need a designer. Well, the whole point of Darwinism is to explain that apparent design without a designer. That's the whole point. Yes, it looks designed, but it isn't because it actually came about this way. And that's why guys like uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins wrote books like uh, The Blind Watchmaker and Climbing Mount Improbable and things like that. The whole point is we can explain the appearance of design without a creator, without a designer. Now you just have to see that's exactly the opposite point of the explanation in Genesis. The point of Genesis is that God created all things. So logically, both of those explanations cannot be true. If life began naturally, then it did not begin supernaturally. So, when a well-meaning Christian says something like this, and I've heard it many times, I think at one point I used to even say it. You know, God could have used the molecules to man scenario, God could have used that as his method of creation. Well, that's, that's well-meaning, I get it, but it frankly misses the point. The issue is not what God could have done. The issue is that Genesis says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Naturalistic explanation says, no, he didn't. So you cannot put those two stories together logically. They're mutually exclusive. So that's one way it doesn't work. But I think there's, a, there's another problem. It doesn't work practically. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, usually the reason people are trying to reconcile the two stories is so that it, it can become then a compelling uh, so, that, so that people won't be put off by the Bible. They won't be put off when we try to share the good news with them. You know, we don't, we don't want to appear foolish. We don't want to be stupid about this. And, and the problem is when you try to put the two together, uh, it doesn't work. Your attempts to not look foolish won't work. Because if you believe in God, if you believe that God had any kind of role in your creation, then you already believe a fairy tale as far as the naturalists are concerned. 
your attempts to fit God into the naturalistic story, the evolutionary story, will never impress the naturalists, ever. They're going to think you're stupid, just like people who take Genesis seriously are stupid. Maybe a little less stupid, but still stupid, okay? The only way, the only way to appear intelligent on the issue of origins is to adopt the naturalistic explanation that God is not necessary. Folks, if God is not necessary, Christians have no message. We have nothing to say. So I I don't think you gain anything by trying to adjust Genesis to fit the other story. And the question is, why would we try? We don't do that with other parts of the Christian message that are regarded just as stupid. Let me give you an example. Take the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, It's a heart. It's at the very heart of our message. Paul the Apostle said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're fools. We're, we, we've got nothing. We have no message. Okay, so the resurrection's key. The Bible says that three days after Jesus, on the third day after Jesus was put to death, it was, was actually dead, he came back to life, and he was seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Now, naturalists thinks that's insane. That's crazy. Because science proves dead bodies don't come back to life. That just doesn't happen. And so they come up with alternative naturalistic explanations. No, no, what happened was over the, over the centuries, you know, Christians kind of developed that idea, that thought. Uh, or the disciples just made it up. Or they went to the wrong tomb. Or they had a big hallucination or something. So look what's happening. They're rejecting the biblical account on supposedly scientific grounds, and then they offer a naturalistic alternative. But those of us who believe in Jesus, we say, no, 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 Jesus really did rise from the dead, even though the naturalists think we're idiots on this. Why do we do that? Well, because we've got eyewitness evidence, and frankly, the naturalistic alternatives are simply not compelling. You know, the whole wrong tomb, he didn't really die, uh, it was a hallucination, those accounts are simply not believable. Okay, now take that same thinking and apply it to Genesis. What is Genesis? Well, it claims to be the eyewitness account of the only one who was there. And the naturalistic alternative that all of life, all that you see, all of its complexity, all of its mystery, all of its beauty is simply the result of unplanned, undirected, unpurposeful. There's no purpose to any of it. There's no such thing as good and evil. There's no All the stuff we talked about last time, and if you missed the message, you can catch it online. 
the naturalistic alternative, which is actually just an elaborate way of saying it all just happened. For me, anyway, that story's not believable. So why would we try to accommodate it? Well, the reason is, is because we've been told again and again and again by very influential, very well-spoken people that that's, the naturalistic story is true, Genesis is false. We've been told that again and again. So that brings me to the second reason for taking Genesis seriously. And that is that Genesis is consistent with the actual evidence. The actual evidence of how life works. The actual evidence that we have. Not interpretations of evidence, but the actual evidence we have is consistent with a purposeful designer and frankly, I think, more consistent than the naturalistic explanation. Things about, you know, um, how cells actually work, that inside of you, you not only have matter and energy, you have information, and you have complex microscopic machines that are very complex. That the actual evidence of life and, and things like the fossil record and everything else are consistent with the Genesis account. Now, I understand that's a very big claim, and uh, unfortunately, I don't have time to back it up. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> but I have put a couple of websites on your note sheet, and the reason I've put those there is so that you can take time, if you want to pursue this, you can look and you can see... Um, the evidence examined and explained by guys with PhDs who believe it's consistent with the Genesis account. So I encourage you to do that. What I want to do, just quickly, is address a common misconception about the nature of science and the Genesis account. The biggest misconception is that science, science has somehow disproven Genesis and proven that life originated naturally. That claim is made all the time. But in point of fact, science can't do that. Hear me. I'm not saying science hasn't done it. I'm saying it can't because of the very nature of what science is. Science is based on observation and experimentation which means science can never give us certainty about anything that's not observed. Things we can't observe. And the fact is, when naturalists are being candid, they will admit this. Uh, Richard Dawkins, I've mentioned him before. He's one of the most outspoken advocates of the naturalistic point of view. He thinks all creationists are idiots, complete morons. And he said in an interview, I've seen it, I've heard it, he was asked how life began, and he said, I don't know. And he said, and nobody else does either. And the reason he said that is what I'm saying. Science cannot know what it doesn't observe. This is true of all past events that had no human witnesses, no observers. Let me just give you one example, the formation of the Grand Canyon. 
How did the Grand Canyon form? Well, the conventional view, uh, because this is a canyon, you can see many, many different layers of rock and sediment and things in the, in the layers there. The conventional story is that the Grand Canyon formed, that those rock layers were laid down over millions and millions of years. And then, well, this used to be the conventional view of this part of it. It's actually been changed recently, but for years, the, the explanation was that over more millions of years, the Colorado River there at the bottom of the canyon slowly eroded the rock and created the canyon that we see today. Now, the question is, is that a scientific explanation? Well, scientists can certainly measure the rate at which the river is eroding rock today. Science can certainly tell us much about the layers of rock and how they're composed and so on. But obviously, if the canyon was formed over millions of years, no one was there to observe it. No one saw it happen. So the story of its formation is based not on observational evidence, this is what we saw, it's based on assumptions about the evidence. You have to make several assumptions. For example, you have to assume that the present rates of erosion have always been the same. You have to assume that the rates of which those rocks were deposited was the same, and so on. You say, okay, you're losing me here. I can see the donut look in your eyes. <clears throat> glazed. <laughs> Here's why this is significant. Just north of us here, near Mount St. Helens, there is a canyon that looks like the Grand Canyon on a much smaller scale. And if you look at it, you see layers. You see stratification. Different layers of rock and sediment and at the bottom of that canyon, there is a river that is eroding it. Now, if you use the same assumptions that are used to describe the formation of the Grand Canyon, you could tell a very similar story about the formation of this canyon. However, you would be wrong. Because we have actual observational evidence of how this canyon formed. All those layers, all that stratification, that was, those were formed in a matter of days by a series of volcanic eruptions. You may have heard of Mount St. Helens. The canyon was eroded in a matter of hours when because of another volcanic event, the waters of Spirit Lake crested and broke through a, a dam of debris and scoured out that canyon with a massive torrent of water. So here's the point. It's one thing to have an explanation like that based on what we actually see. It's a very different thing to have an explanation based on assumptions about what we didn't see. We can measure, we can test, we can experiment, we can learn about how things are now. Science does that very well. Fantastic tool. But science can never make definitive statements about the past because those statements always include unprovable assumptions. So when someone offers you an explanation about the past, it is always legitimate, and in fact, it's entirely scientific and rational to say, is this explanation based on actual observation or is it built on assumptions? 
That's why I believe it's a misconception to say that the evidence favors a naturalistic explanation over Genesis. It's not the evidence. It's an interpretation of the evidence that includes unproven assumptions. To be blunt, what's really going on here is this. We are being asked to accept the speculations of people who don't know everything, who weren't there, and frankly, who sometimes don't tell the truth. We're being asked to accept their speculations over the claims of Genesis and what it claims to be an eyewitness account of someone who was there and who always tells the truth. Now, if that sounds like an overstatement to you, and I imagine it probably does to many, I just want to give you one more reason for taking Genesis seriously, and that is this. The New Testament takes Genesis seriously. Jesus took Genesis seriously. The apostles took Genesis seriously. The New Testament takes Genesis seriously. Now, sometimes people will say, you know, to someone like me who's, you know, making this big deal about Genesis, people say, what, what's, what's your problem? You know, th- this is just distracting us from our real message. Can we get serious about this? I mean, what's our message? Our message is the gospel. We're supposed to proclaim the good news about Jesus. You know, I mean, that team going over to Italy, they're not going to spend all this time talking about Genesis. They're going to talk about Jesus. They're going to talk about the need to put their faith in Christ Jesus told us to go and make disciples. What difference does it make if Genesis is historical or simply fictional? Here's the difference. Here's why it matters. Our message, our message, the good news that Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world to rescue sinners, to make us right with God, By dying on a cross and rising from the dead, that message and many other things that Jesus taught and the apostles taught, those things all assume the truthfulness of Genesis. And they don't make sense without it. And so, to remove that from the gospel message ultimately causes that message to collapse. It's like one of those threads that show up that you really shouldn't pull because if you pull it, you lose your sleeve or something. Let me give you just two quick examples of what I mean. Matthew chapter 19. Look how this holds together. Pharisees came to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's a big practical issue. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore, conclusion, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Do you see it? These passages both make significant, practical, moral, 
conclusions based on a straightforward understanding of Genesis. If Genesis is not true, then these conclusions are not true. There was no Adam and Eve. Therefore, there is no divine design for marriage. And since Adam and Eve did not exist, there was no sin of Adam which spread death to the whole human race. It just won't work to dismiss the first 11 chapters of the Bible and then try to take the rest of it seriously. It's all woven together. And those who advocate the other story know this, whether we do or not. Consider this quote from Richard Bozard. Christianity has fought, still fights, and will fight science, he means naturalism, to the desperate end over evolution because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin, and in the rubble you will find the sorry remains of the Son of God. Take away the meaning of his death. If Jesus was not the Redeemer that died for our sins... And this is what evolution means. Then Christianity is nothing. I agree with him. He's absolutely right. Here's where this comes down to for me. As I see it, there's no good reason why we should not take Genesis seriously. And there are a whole bunch of reasons why we should. And I would say to you that if you will think about it carefully, if you will learn how to examine the arguments, how to distinguish evidence from assumptions, how to not be intimidated by people because they have PhD after their name, people who supposedly reject Genesis for supposedly scientific reasons, if you will learn to do that, I believe you will find that taking Genesis seriously is not only reasonable, it's right. And that gives us the solid foundation for answering the question, who says? Which is a very practical question. Let's pray together. Father, I know that these are um, significant issues, and I maybe have raised more questions than I answered today. But I believe you are the one who holds the answers. So will you, will you help us? Will you answer our questions? Will you give us confidence in who you are and what you've said? Lord, I pray for anybody who's just really wrestling with this issue that you will guide them to the answers they need. And Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the truth of it. Help us see the foundation on which it's built is strong. And Lord, will you just send us out of here with a, a renewed determination to rely on you, to trust you, and to make your good news known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.